Colossians chapter 3. Can you go ahead and turn there? Colossians chapter 3. So we're going passage by passage through this letter to the Colossian church. And God sovereignly we land at verse 12 and 13 today, which I think is very, very important for us. Let's pray and we'll read it. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, you didn't have to reveal yourself to us, God. You could have ignored us and sent us to hell for all of eternity, Lord, and you'd be just. You'd be fair. But God, you've been so merciful. Thank you for your word, Lord. And thank you for this church, God. Thank you for raising up this church, Lord, brothers and sisters, family. God, you've caused us to love one another in some very sincere and intimate and deep ways, God. And I just pray that you would increase that more today. God, you said that your word gives grace. At the beginning of almost all of these letters, Lord, it's grace to you and peace to you from God our Father. And I just pray that you would grant grace to come to us today. As we read your word, as we open it up, Lord, that you would move us, God, to be a people devoted to one another, God, full of love in our souls for one another, bearing one another's burdens. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, God. Lord, I pray that you would expose our sin and our failures in that this morning. And Lord, let it not land in condemnation. Let it land in repentance and turning to you, Lord. Help us, God, please. Your word is beautiful and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that, God. We believe that. And so we submit ourselves to it this morning. Please help me, God, to preach your word and the ability that is coming from you. And help every person here, Lord, to hear your word. God, I pray that you would cause our hearts, Lord, cause everyone here, their hearts to lean forward, Lord, as if on the edge of their seat, God, to hear from the King of glory. God, please deliver us this morning from laid back, leisurely listening, God. And cause us to climb our ear and hear the words of truth that you've given us. God, I'm trusting that this is a word that you have specifically, God, and especially for your church this morning. I believe you're sovereign, God, and you have us laying in here for a reason. So please, oh God, help us. Help us this morning. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. First heading on your study guide there says, does it matter what a Christian wears? And I say, yes, it matters what a Christian wears. And I don't mean just in a physical sense. This here says, put something on. It says, put on them. First three words. Put on them. 
Here we're told to put something on. Just like in verse 5 and verse 8, we were told to put something away, to put something off. So we were told to put off vices. Now we're told to put on virtues. And these, these words have a meaning of, of taking off and putting on clothing. It matters what you wear spiritually. Now we've already looked at what to put off in verse 5 and verse 8. And now today we're being told this is, this is, these are the spiritual clothes that we are to put on. Okay, It's, it's an interesting repetition here. If you go back and you glance at verse 5, you see five words that tell us to put off these sort of sins of sexual morality and covetousness. Five words. In verse 8, we see a list, another list of five words that say put off sinful anger and these other, these other outlivings of that sinful anger. Five words. And here today when we got what we need to put on, we have five words put before us of not just what to take off, but what to put on in Christ Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I gave the illustration of Lazarus being uh, raised from the dead by Jesus in John chapter 11. And I believe you can continue that illustration even this morning. Think about it. Lazarus is dead. He's dead in the tomb with his stinking grave clothes on. This made perfect sense that he's got grave clothes on because he's dead. He's supposed to have grave clothes on. He has no power to strip off those grave clothes. He has no power to put on the clothes of life. He has zero power because he's dead and he's in the tomb. And Jesus commands, and what a picture of our salvation. Jesus commands, Lazarus, come forth. And that man awakens from the dead. He's now alive. And yet Lazarus still has on his grave clothes. He still has the stench of death all over him. But now he's got the power to change that. And so we read in John chapter 11. After he told him to come forth. Where Jesus says, take in John eleven forty four, Take off the grave clothes. No power to do it when he was dead. Now he's alive. And Jesus tells him, take off the grave clothes. It made sense that you had grave clothes on then, but it doesn't make sense now because you've been made alive. It doesn't make sense that you have those on, but rather you need to put on these grace clothes. You need to put on this clothing and wrap yourself in Christ. Not the stench of death, but the smell of Christ all over you. Put that on. Is what he tells us to do here. And no longer makes sense that we wear those grave clothes of sexual morality, love of money, sinful anger, and pride, but rather put on the garments of Christ described here in Colossians 3.12. Now these characteristics that we're to put on, they can be summarized as Christ's likeness. Romans 12 and verse 13, it tells us, put on, excuse me, Romans 13, 14, says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our summary statement. Listen, all these characteristics, we get more specifics because sometimes those general things, they, we, we just lose sight of what it actually means. But in a general sense, we can say, put on the Lord Jesus. Put on Christ. Put on Christ likeness. I want you to notice this put on then, it's not a passive thing. This is a very active command. It's not, it's not to passively hope that these things happen, but it's telling you, it's commanding you. It's imperative that you put on these qualities. It's an active thing 
that you go after. You don't just sit back and hope that these personalities will just land on you at some point. But you put on these qualities. It's a pursuit of your life. It's an active thing, not passive. I want you to notice that these qualities are, are, are put in the framework. Or they put you into the framework of relationships. Okay? These five qualities that we're to put on, they put you in the context of relationships. Does that make sense? These things have to happen within relationships. In other words, the command to be patient is not to just be patient with yourself. The command to be kind is not to just be kind with yourself. This is in the context of the body of Christ. In fact, many people do this. If you want to feel okay about these things without actually obeying them, just distance yourself from the church. Distance yourself from the body of Christ. And you feel no need to walk in these things. These things are in the context of relationships. I believe that this section of scripture is very, very important personally for me. And I believe in a, in a, in a big way for all of us as a local church. I, I told some people this just the other night that I believe studying these things has walked me into a spirit led shame. A shame, something I need to repent of. And I want to call you into this too as a church that if this is, these are things that you need to repent of as well. I want to ask you to repent, to have an open heart, to hear from Christ telling you to repent this morning. And I know I feel that in my own soul. And one way I described that to a brother this week was that, that if I was honest with myself, when I think, when I've thought over, over recent uh, times about a man or a woman who, man, that, that man, that woman is solid in Christ. That person right there is a man of God, a godly person. These kind of qualities of humility and meekness and kindness and compassion and patience, these things are way too far down the line on my list when they're at the top of the list for God. And I believe I need to repent of these things. And I want to encourage you to repent with me if that's a need for you. The tense of this command put on them. The tense of this command, it, it brings us into this idea of it's a continual putting on, a continual process of putting these things on. It's not just a one-time thing, but it's something that we continue to do day by day, moment by moment. The Christian life, it's easy if it's just abstaining from things. That's one thing. If it's just doing your religious duties, that's another thing. But this is a whole other animal to put on Christ's likeness, the characters of Christ, characteristics of Christ. And we're called to go after that in all the little details, not just the macro level, but the micro level details of our lives. So before we dig in to these five characteristics, I want to look at the next phrase in verse 12. Okay, Now I've got on your, on your study guide under the heading of Christian, know yourself. Know yourself. And here's the verse, the, the words I'm talking about. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on them. And before he gets to what he tells you to put on, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's what he calls everyone here who's in Christ today. Now clearly this is a, pa a passage that that is highlighting something that, that we've highlighted again and again. That we as Christians must come to grips with something that Christ has already accomplished, already done for us before we move in to obedience to Christ. 
It must be a foundation that Christ has done something before we move in to the dues. And this is a clear example of that as he says, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put these things, put these things on. I want you to think about that like a father and a son, like a father and a son. Think about my son. I want my son to know certain things about himself. I want him to know that he is my son and that I love him and he belongs to me. And he he doesn't have to earn my sonship, but he's my son. I care for him regardless of his effort, of his performance. I want him to know that about himself. And I think that will free him up to obey me in such a way that is not to earn his sonship. He can obey me in such a way that it's, it's it's a freedom that's motivated out of love. But I want him to know that. Son, no matter what you do, I love you. I care for you. You're mine. You belong to me. So I want you to think about what we're doing here in this passage today like that. So so what that means is, I want to speak to every believer in this room. I want to encourage you. Because I think God by His Spirit wants to encourage you through these three descriptions of yourself. I want you to be deeply Deeply encouraged by these words. And I believe that if you're blown away by the fact that you are God's chosen one, holy and beloved. I believe when you're blown away by that, that what's going to be produced in you is obedience to verses 12 through 13 and putting on these characteristics. So let's begin with the first word. God's chosen ones. Chosen. Think about that. Apply it to yourself if you're in Christ. God's chosen ones. The New King James says, as the elect of God. As the elect of God. God has chosen you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this means He's picked you. He has picked you out. He's chosen you. Ephesians 1.4 Let it land on you. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We're bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved, beloved by the Lord. Now why is he saying we got to give thanks to God? And why does he call them beloved of the Lord? Listen, because God from the beginning chose you. Does that encourage your soul? I've been chosen to play on a sports team before. It's insignificant. It made me feel good. I'm sure some of you experienced that. To be chosen for a particular job, a little more significant, but, but you feel glad about that to be chosen for a particular job to be but, but think about the difference in those things and to be chosen by your spouse. Chosen by your wife or by your husband that knows your faults and is motivated in love that they choose you despite your, your faults. And then you take it a step higher. You imagine the God of glory that knows every sin you ever committed. Knows everything about you. And all your facade of self-righteousness. He didn't fall for it. And yet He chose you in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. It's glorious. To know that we've come to Christ because He has chosen us. It crushes our pride. Amen. It absolutely crushes our pride. Charles Spurgeon, he said it like this. Charles Spurgeon understood his deep, deep depravity. Depravity in sin. And so he said this about 
God choosing him. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. This truth absolutely obliterates, crushes our pride and moves us into this place, motivates us toward this place to walk in those command, or walk in those characteristics that we see in Colossians 3.12. Chosen ones, pride crushed, therefore compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, patience. It conditions us when we see this to walk into these characteristics. Now the following two words... They give us a deeper description, holy and beloved. They give us a deeper description of what it means to be the chosen ones of God. And I think this is important because so often we think of chosen of God in such a cold and mechanical way. A dry way that the Bible never meant for you to think about being chosen of God. And so these two words come in to help you understand it. Holy and beloved. Let's start with holy. That word holy means you've been set apart. You've been set apart. Set apart by God from the world and set apart unto Himself. You've been made holy. All of the New Testament Christians are called His saints. His saints, that means you're my holy ones. You're the ones that I have set apart to myself. What a title to be applied to us saints. Holy ones of God. God Himself is called holy. He's set apart. There's none like God. You've got the Holy Spirit. There's none like Him. He's set apart. He's different. You've got those holy angels in God's Word set apart to Him. And what, what an amazing thing that this title would land on us. That we'd be the holy ones of God. Set apart from the world and for Him. What an amazing, amazing title. In a very real and true sense, we are being sanctified which means we're being made holy it's a continual process of us being sanctified that's very real but that's because in a very real sense we are sanctified now if you're in Christ Jesus you are made holy you are set apart and being set apart at the same time according to God's word I, I love I love these two words when they come together think about it you're chosen and holy means you're selected by God, not just in a general and non-personal way, but you're selected by God to be with Him, holy and for Him, set apart to Him. If you're in Christ, it kind of gives us this visual, this is the visual I got of, of God, not in personally selecting you, but this vision of God saying, I want Him with me, I want Him for me for all of eternity. Which brings us to the last word here, beloved, beloved. Now the NIV says, dearly loved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are dearly loved. You're the beloved of God. How do you tend to imagine Christ looking upon you? Do you imagine Him looking on you with love? As His chosen one? Mark 10, 21 says, Jesus looked at Him. And loved him. 
The Apostle John, he called himself, you ever done this? He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine that? Tell me something about yourself. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's who I am. He loves me. He gave himself for me. You are the object, Christian, you are the object of his special love according to this verse of scripture. Now typically this idea of being chosen by God is separated from his love, but not in the Bible. Listen to me, the Bible does not separate this idea of chosen of God and loved by God. God knows no such thing, and his word knows no such thing as a dry, mechanical, and cold election by God. Think about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, we've already mentioned it. It says that He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And when you keep reading, it says, In love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons. It's not a dry thing. It's not mechanical. It's God leaning towards you in love and mercy and making you His own. God's choosing is slam full of loving affections for us. You need to understand that. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to flip back there and read that. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. I really want you to. This little passage to Israel. I hope it's not. I'm not asking for too much freedom here. But I want to encourage you to apply this to yourself. Listen to verse 6. For you are a people holy. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you. And chose you. And you love these phrases together? It's not because you are more in number. It's not because you're great that He set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Chosen, holy and loved by God. Now, something about this love-motivated choosing of God. Not, not merit-motivated, right? So God didn't look and go, man, I see something good in Him, I'm going to choose Him. It's not that. He saw nothing but vileness. He chose wretches. So this love-motivated choosing, it just, it just kind of warms your heart, right? It, uh, maybe a better way to say it, it makes you want to worship King Jesus. This love-motivated choosing. So as, as I thought about these things, these chosen, loved, set apart, and I was thinking about, well, how is that supposed to land on me and my brothers and sisters in Christ? How are those descriptions of us and what God has done supposed to land on us? And I, I thought of a couple of things. One thing is, is something that I say to my son. And I say to this, this to him pretty often. In fact, now when I begin to say it, he knows it's coming. But think about what I'm trying to communicate to him here. I look at him off and I say, son, Samuel, if somebody lined up every boy in this world, every little boy, millions of them, standing billions, every little boy in this world, some older than you, some little younger, 
Some stronger, some weaker, some faster, some slower, some smarter, some dumber. And you just lined them all up. And he said, you can have anyone that you want. I said, son, I'll choose you. I want you, Samuel. And what am I communicating to him in that? That I've chosen him. I love him. I care for him. And I think the way that's landing on him, the way I want that to land on him, is the way this is supposed to land on you. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let me give you another example. I thought of a funeral, a funeral that I went to one time. It was a funeral for uh, Mr. Randy Phillips, uh, who is, uh, was a godly man who loved Christ, the disciple. A lot of people here have connections with him and his family. But a godly man, loved the Lord, loved his family, loved his family dearly. And at his funeral, I remember his oldest, his oldest son named James speaking at the funeral. And he was speaking about a chance that his dad had to, had to coach in the NFL. And of course, you know, his dad, he, he's a young kid, maybe about six, seven, eight years old. And his dad gets his chance to coach in the NFL. And, and he's excited about it. And, and his dad tells him, well, let me, let me pray about that. I need to pray about this situation. In the meantime, all this memorabilia comes into their house, this massive box, and young James is seeing this stuff going, man, look at all this stuff, and he's excited and thinking about getting to be a part of his dad coaching in the NFL, and after he spent time praying about it, his dad turns down the position. And he said he vividly remembers his dad saying something like this. He said, Dad, Dad, why, why didn't you take the position, Dad, as a young kid? Why didn't you Go coach for the NFL. And he remembers his dad. He was telling this at the funeral with tears in his eyes. He remembers his dad saying something like this. Because I don't want to coach other people's boys. I want to coach you. And I thought, man, the way he felt in that moment as a young boy. That my dad wants me. He don't want other people's boys. My dad has chosen me. He loves me. I think this is the way. That young boy. The way that landed on him. I want you to imagine this. Listen to me. As God's chosen ones. That's you in Christ. Holy and beloved. Loved by God. And I want you to be encouraged by that. He loved us in action. Christ died for us at the cross. Paid for our sin on that tree. He's loved us in affections. The scripture says He rejoices over you with singing and He quiets you with His love. What kind of language is that? And when you pause to consider those things for a minute, who He is and what He's done for you, doesn't it, just, doesn't it just warm your heart to say, Lord, I want to be whatever You want me to be. I want to do whatever it is You want me to do, God. Whatever You command me, I'll do. Wherever You send me, I'll go. Doesn't it just prepare your heart for that? So that brings us to these five characteristics that we are commanded to put on. Five Christ-like characteristics that Christians should put on. <clears throat> Compassionate hearts, it says. Kindness. Number three, humility. Meekness. And patience. I want you to remember that as we think through these five characteristics of Christ, that listen, you need to pursue these things actively, aggressively. Let this stuff get down into the little tiny bits of your life. Not just pursuing these things on a macro level, but a micro level in the details of your life. Pursuing these characteristics. The first one says compassionate hearts. Put it on. Put on compassionate hearts. The King James says bowels of mercy. Mercy. 
It's using this word bowels. Bowels of mercy is, is something inside of you. It's something within you. This, this flowing out compassion and mercy and love. He says, put that on. Put that on. This idea of the word that's used there is it's the, it's the seat of the emotions, which tells us that emotions are not a non-issue. I realize there's different kind of personalities and emotions are higher and lower, but it's not a non-issue. You are being called here to go after the, put on the heart of compassion, the bowels of mercy. We see these, these characteristics in Christ. I love if you, if you take, I encourage you to do this sometime. If you take God's word and you look up the times where Jesus is described as moved with compassion, moved with compassion, and you just write them all down and you meditate on each one of those when Jesus was moved with compassion. We see it in Matthew 9. He sees a sick and weary multitude of people and it says he's moved with compassion. Matthew 14, the multitudes are following him even though... He's trying to go away to an, to an isolated place. And he doesn't look on them with frustration. It says, it says he's moved with compassion toward them. In Matthew 15, he sees a bunch of people who are very hungry. And he tells his disciples this. I have compassion on the multitude. I do not want to send them away hungry. You feel the care of the Savior in that? What about individuals? Matthew 20, he's moved with compassion for that blind and poor beggar that everybody else said showed up to. And yet he's moved with compassion for that man. In Mark chapter 1, you've got that leper that nobody else would touch. Unclean, unclean. And he's moved with compassion and reaches out his hand and touches that man. In Luke chapter 7, there's a widow from, from Nain. And that widow who's already lost her husband has now lost her only son. And says Jesus sees her weeping and is moved with compassion for her. Even in Jesus' teaching, we see that. We see the prodigal son in Luke 15. And that prodigal son is going astray just like all of us. A picture of all of us that have gone astray. And when he repents and turns back to his father, his father runs toward him, moved with compassion for his son. What about you? What moves you? What moves you? Put on compassionate heart like your Savior. Second word, kindness. And what this is, the compassionate heart is the internal reality. And kindness is how this compassionate heart reaches out and connects with other people around you. The compassionate heart is the inward thing and the kindness is the external extension of that compassion out to other people. So what is it to live out kindness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? One commentator called it a sweetness of temper. Sweetness of temper. This word, it was used literally to speak about, to describe wine, W-I-N-E, wine. That had mellowed in age and lost its harshness. Kindness. Mellowed with age and lost its harshness. What about you? Is there a sharpness to you? A harshness? A sharpness to your demeanor? A sharpness to your words? Do you need to be mellowed with the kindness of Christ? I want to read a verse in Ephesians 2. There's a few places that speak about the kindness of Christ. And one of those I love is in Ephesians chapter 2. It's verse 4 through 7. Now what this is, I'm going to read verse 7 first. 
So that, so something's already been described. Then it says, so that in the coming ages, He, God, might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we see here God's kindness as a way to put on display the immeasurable grace of God. Well, how is His kindness described? If I back up, you know, verse 7 said, so that. So you got to back up to verse 4. Listen to His kindness. But God, being rich in mercy, oh, what kindness. Because of the great love with which He loved us, what kindness. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus to show His grace and His kindness towards us. I want you to think about that. This means that kindness is no passive thing. You sit back and hope an opportunity to be kind comes up. No! Jesus invaded the earth to show His kindness. He raised us from the dead. Resurrected us with Christ. This is His active kindness into His people. And so it's not passive. Are you living out intentional, <laughs> sacrificial kindness towards the body of Christ in the world? What if every one of us prayed this regularly? God, God, give us hearts of compassion like Christ. Fill us with hearts of compassion like Christ. And every day we said, oh God, and with this heart of compassion like you, open the door. Give me opportunity, Lord, to express your kindness. Like David said, remember David? I believe it's 1 Samuel 9. David, David, David wanted God to give him a chance to show the kindness of God to a son of Saul. And so God brought a fever shift into his life. What if we prayed that every day? Third word. Humility. Humility. This is a lowliness. A lowliness. A humble opinion of oneself. A deep sense of your own littleness. It's the opposite of pride. Humility. It's not so much to think less about yourself as much to just think rightly about yourself. You really do need God. You really are ignorant compared to Him. You really are weak compared to Him. It's not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking... Rightly about yourself, humility. A humble person, a humble person doesn't necessarily uh, belittle himself. He just ignores himself. He's not thinking about himself. He himself is not on his mind because God is on his mind. In others, he's other people minded. He's humble. It's opposite. Pride. Listen to me. I believe is more dangerous than than we realize. Pride is more dangerous. Then I believe that we realize. Let me just say a few things to make you believe that. Pride was that sin in the world prior to the fall of man. Pride is that sin which is the root of all other sins. All sins find their hiding place in pride. It's at the top of that list in Proverbs of six things that God hates. It's at the very top. Pride. Six things God hates. Listen, it says in the Bible that pride is an abomination to God. He hates it. He hates it. He hates it. Can you think of something that you hate? Something you hate. You hate abortion. You hate racism. You hate rape. 
Things that you hate. Listen, it does not hold a candle to the way God hates pride. It's an abomination to Him. It's very deceptive. It's unique in that not only does pride seep into the obviously rebellious and bad things, but it seeps into our good intentions. It can be masked in religious devotion that I'm reading my Bible and praying my prayers and a part of the body of Christ and doing things for God and yet pride motivates it all. It can seep in. It's very, very deceptive. We must make war on pride. We must put on humility. I had a thought that drove me to prayer that there's been many sound theology Mission-minded, well-intentioned churches that have crashed and burned. There's a pride area. Do you believe that? It should be a warning to us. This is so important. Put on humility. Church of Jesus Christ. Humility. Uh, Jerry Bridges said that humility is the soil in which all the other fruits of the spirits grow. Put on humility. So it's this important, and yet how infrequently do you hear people speaking about godliness? That's a godly man. That's a godly woman. That's a solid man in Christ Jesus. And how infrequently does that mean they're humble, they're lowly, they're meek? And I believe that's right at the heart of the repentance I was referring to earlier. I need to repent of those things. And if you have similar thoughts, I want to encourage you to repent of those things as well. Thank God. I had thought earlier that I feel like really the other night when we were discussing it with a group in my house on Friday night, uh, I was reminded that when I was saved, um, when I first came to Christ, the first time I ever was a part of any Bible study ever in my life, I entered this Bible study. The first thing we were doing is we're going through a book. On, uh, from Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Godliness. And I came in a little bit late. And I came in on the chapter Humility. Like man, God's trying to get me from the very beginning on this stuff. He's trying to drive this into me. And I want it to stick. I want it to be a full repentance in these things. Um, many things grab our attention. But I think we need, to be, we need to be aware that this is what grabs God's attention. Listen, listen to Isaiah 66. So what, you know, what grabs your attention? Listen to Isaiah 66, what grabs God's attention. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one on whom I will look. God doesn't have eyes. In the sense that we think of eyes. What's he saying? This is the one that catches my attention. Like Jesus was astonished at that man that we read about in the Gospels. This is what astonishes God. And what does it say here? He who is humble. And crushed in spirit. And who trembles at my word. Fourth word is meekness. The, the New American Standard says gentleness. Are you a meek? And gentle soul. Humility is the inward disposition there of humility. And, and meekness is the living out of that humility. As your humility connects with people in the body of Christ. Or in your family. Or your wife. Or your husband. It's the meekness that you live out towards them. Jesus did not just. 
He didn't just possess an impractical humility that made no effect on this earth. He had a practical humility that showed itself in meekness. The meekness of Christ. And we got that word all messed up, typically in our culture. That it's meekness is weakness. Our little funny comments about meek and timid people when I was studying this, that are wrong. I'm thinking about my Savior Jesus, who looked at those men when they came to arrest Him, and He said, I am, and everybody falls back in that moment. It's not weak. And yet He allows Himself, power under control, He allows Himself to be taken in, in His humility, in His meekness. I think about meekness in John 13 when Jesus, the, 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 the Son of God, the King of glory, humbles Himself and He hits His knees and begins to wash the nasty feet of those disciples, even that one that would betray, betray Him. I think of meekness of Christ lived out in Philippians 2 when it says that we need to have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus, that though He's equal with God, He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather He humbled Himself. He became a servant. He became a man. And He humbled Himself to the point of death, even the humiliating death of a cross. He did that. His meekness was practical. It meant something. It had an effect on this world. And so I want you to think about that. If I asked your family, if I asked your family, or, or, or if I got some sort of survey from your family or your closest friends in the body of Christ, would these things be at the top list? Hey, what's that brother like? What's that sister like? Would these things be at the top list? Humble and meek. Is that what they would say about you? I don't think it's what they would say about me. And I'm ashamed to say it. But I say let's grow in this together, right? Even more than that, what does God say? Does God see you as meek and humble and gentle soul? Last word here is patience. It's literally long suffering. It's to suffer. It's to bear up under suffering for a long time. It's not to be, it's not to have a short fuse, but to have a, a, a long fuse. A very long fuse. It's long suffering. Think about the patience of God. In 1 Peter 3.20, God is literally called the divine long-suffering. That's His name. Who waited in the days of Noah for the ark to be prepared. He's the divine long-suffering. He knows He's going to pour out His wrath on these people. It is due them. It's due them in this moment. But He waits for a hundred plus years for the ark to be built. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when it describes that the reason that Christ has yet to return is because He's long-suffering toward us. He's patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what He's like. He's patient. I believe that this quality of patience is taken way too lightly in our culture. Please hear me out on this. Now, if you've ever asked me to pray for you in patience, I believe you. So don't be offended. But I'm just telling you, in our culture, too often, how does it go? Hey, man, how can I pray for you? Just pray I'll be patient. And it's taken so lightly. It's just this way, it's kind of an out. Just, just pray I'll be patient, you know? And it's just this little out out there that doesn't really mean anything. And I want to encourage you, don't take this lightly. At the beginning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, it says that we need the strength that comes from divine power so that we can live out long-suffering and patience with joy. It's a big deal. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, when uh, people in the body of Christ are button heads, they're button heads bad. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, what are you doing? 
Why would you not rather let yourself be wronged? Why would you? Does this have a place in your life? Why would you not rather let yourself be cheated? Is there any place for that in your life? Because that's a good description to me of this patience we're talking about. To let yourself be cheated in the body of Christ. In summary, I take all these together in summary. This is a command to put on, brothers and sisters in Christ, put on these Christ-like qualities. Meditate on these qualities. Get into the habit of a daily pursuit of these qualities that look like Christ. Don't ignore them. Next heading we have there in your study guide says the, the hostile environment. And here's where I'm getting that from. The verse in verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now that's a participial phrase. It's describing the context in which those five qualities are lived out. What kind of context? In this context of bearing with each other, complaints are there and forgiving each other. I want you to think about this. Just think about this question. When you think about the environment or the community in which you live out these five qualities, and we know they have to be lived out in community. Like I said, you're not just patient with yourself. Okay? So when you think about these five qualities being lived out in a community or a certain environment, what kind of environment do you picture yourself living this out in the midst of? What kind of environment do you see is necessary to live out these five qualities we've just mentioned of Christ? And you got two options. One, it could be, uh, do you see yourself living this out in the perfect environment where people are always loving, always kind, always patient, always humble? They never offend you or annoy you or sin against you. Is that the way you see this being lived out? Or your second option is a community that is full an environment that is full of offenses, failures, annoyances, sins. And I would just say this. Colossians 3.13 moves us towards that second option, right? Otherwise, if it's a perfect world that you live this out in, why do we need to bear with one another? Why do we need to forgive one another? Why does it mention complaints if it's the perfect world you live it out in? It's not that. So why should we, why is it that we should expect this sort of hostile environment even in the church? Why? I'll give you two reasons. One is indwelling sin. It's real. I call it the war within. Indwelling sin in you. It's real. It's fine. Your indwelling sin is going to affect other people negatively. Their indwelling sin is going to affect you negatively. That's the environment that you live these things out in. Second reason, spiritual warfare. That's the war without. There is a war being waged. Satan and demons, unclean spirits, lying, deceiving. All that's happening. So therefore we can expect to walk these things out in a hostile environment. Think about that. We should expect, we should expect to live out compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience. Not in a place where people are compassionate, kind, meek, humble, and patient with me. That's not what we should expect to live it out. We live these things out in a war zone of indwelling sin and spiritual warfare. Here, the words here, first word, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. That means listen to me. Keep yourself erect. Stand firm under the weight. Bear the weight. Think of the pain that's involved with that. You ever had a weight on your back like that? 
Bear up under the weight of other people's sins, of other people's weaknesses, of other people's failures, of other people's annoyances. Bear with them. It's going to involve pain. Next word is forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. John Piper defines this word forgiving right here like this. Listen. The idea is that when we forgive, we do not exact payment. We treat people better than they deserve. So in this sense, you forgive when someone has wronged you. And therefore they are in debt to you. And sheer justice says that you had the right to exact some suffering from them. And payment for the suffering which they caused to you. You not only don't demand this payment, but you freely give good for evil. Forgiveness, forbearance. And this word here, complaint. A complaint against another. That word complaint is, you feel like someone else is to blame. It's the word fault, to find fault. You hit back. It's not your fault. You're not to blame. They're to blame. That person's to blame. That people is to blame. That church is to blame. He says, when these things arise, forbearance and forgiveness. So what kind of, what kind of things should you expect to encounter then? Let's be practical for a minute. What kind of things should you expect to encounter in these relationships, in your marriage? In Grace Community Church, what are things that you should expect to encounter? And I wrote down a few. You should expect to be misunderstood and to misunderstand others. You should expect to encounter annoyances and irritations. You annoyed with things and people annoyed with you. You should expect to be tempted towards complaints. Towards blaming and fault finding. You should be expected to be tempted like that. And people are going to be doing that to you as well. Slander. To encounter slander. The slander is tempting you to have slanderous thoughts to others. And they to have slanderous thoughts towards you. You should expect them to sin against you. And you to sin against them. You should expect offenses. You will offend some people. Sometimes angrily. Sometimes because of your sin. And people will offend you. And there's two ways that you can handle this environment. You can leave or, or if not leave, isolate yourself. Think about how silly this sounds. I'm tired of forbearing these people. I'm going to go forbear some other folks. I think there's a tendency in us to think, you know what, you know, things get hard sometimes in the body of Christ. We think, you know what I need? I just need a fresh start somewhere. I got to go give me a fresh start somewhere. But here's the reality. You go somewhere, you get a fresh start. If you get in tight with those people, guess what's still there? The war within and the war without. You're just starting over. Push through the wall, bearing up under the weight and forgiving the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Looking past these complaints. That's one way you can, you can isolate, you can leave. But the second way you can respond is a gospel love that shows forbearance and forgiveness. A gospel love, which brings us to that last phrase. Under the heading that Jesus is our model and He's our motivation for these things. He's our model for these things, our motivation for these things. The phrase, look at it, I love it. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Oh, I love taking that personal. As the Lord has forgiven you, Brandon, so you also must forgive. And you start thinking, God, He's forgiven me. <laughs> and this is what I live out to others. It's what He's vertically done towards me, bent out horizontally towards my brothers and sisters in Christ or towards my spouse. So here we have 
Forgiveness is defined for us. What do you mean forgiveness? I mean as He has forgiven you. And really all these qualities. What do you mean kindness? The way He's been kind. What do you mean compassion? What do you mean meekness? The way Christ is. It defines all of these in a sense. And it really raises the bar, right? If Christ is the model for our forgiveness, then let's just talk for a moment about the forgiveness of Christ. How did Jesus act? How did He move and act for our forgiveness? What did He do? He goes to the cross. A bunch of people that need forgiveness because, because we have rebelled against Him and He goes to the cross in the sin for which we need forgiveness. He bears it in His own body on the tree and dies for us. Bleeds and dies. Takes our punishment. Sucks up the wrath of God so that we don't have to. He's active. It's not a passive a passive forgiveness. It's an active forgiveness. And we are to model that. Why? Why did Jesus extend this forgiveness? And there's several reasons. Ultimate being for the glory of God Himself. Same reason we should be motivated. But let me mention the motivations here. Love. He forgives because of love and compassion and mercy. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. He, he who has loved us and given Himself for us. Motivated by love. And that's our model. That's the model. That's, that's the one that we want to be like. Uh, he, he forgave us not because or He moved on forgiveness, not because of some merit that He saw in us, right? So it's not that He looked and thought, man, I see something in you. I see something good in you, a little glimmer of goodness in you, and I'm going to die for your sins. It's not what He does. And then the same, what are we waiting on? What are we waiting to see in our brother and sister in Christ? To offer up forgiveness to them. Christ, did He deal with us on the basis of works or on the basis of grace? If it's on the basis of works, it's, hey, you know what? You do me good, I'll do you good. You do me bad, I'll do you bad. And praise the living God, He does not treat us like that. Because you know what would happen? We've not done Him good. We have done Him wrong. And we'd get hell forever. But He's dealt with us on the basis of grace, which is, I will do you good regardless of the fact that you've done me wrong. And so how do we deal with each other? You know, exactly. He does me good, I'll do Him good. JC does me wrong, I'll do Him wrong. Or is it on the basis of grace? We extend that to each other just like Christ did. So I said he's our, he's our model. He's also our motivation. Our motivation. I don't mean motivation in the modern sense of that term. Like he's just pumping us up. I mean motivation as in looking to him and who he is and his forgiveness stirs our hearts towards living out forgiveness. It deals with our motives. The motivation. It deals with our motives. This last phrase. As the Lord has forgiven you. Think about it. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That phrase gives us insight into how, how do we put on these qualities? What do we do? What's the battle plan for putting on these qualities? And this gives us some insight here that the way we do that is we gaze upon Christ. And as we see His forgiveness, as we see His kindness, as we see His humility, we're conformed into the same image. I've mentioned it many, many times. I want to say it again. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as you behold the glory of the Lord, you see Him, you're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
and to the next. So this is a pattern that's all over the New Testament. I gave you several verses there on your study guide that you can look to. And this happens again and again. A command is given that, that we are to be a forgiving people. And then he turns the corner and he points your eyes to Christ like God in Christ has forgiven you. You're to be a people that walk in love just as God has loved us and given Himself for us. So He takes those vertical things. He says, set your eyes on what He's done for you and then bend that out toward each other. It motivates you. It stirs your soul to be those things. And so, if we're going to put on these Christ-like qualities, a daily pursuit, a moment-by-moment pursuit, that means we need to daily and moment-by-moment Gaze upon Christ Jesus the Savior and all of His qualities. Practical things on that would be read the Bible regularly to see Him. Get in God's words. I want to see Him. I want to know Him because when I see Him, I'm conformed into His image. Read books about Christ on what He has done and who He is. Good books. Maybe old books. Get some J.C. Ryle or something. Prayerfully meditate. I'm just giving you a few things to prayerfully meditate on certain passages of Scripture that, that, that draw you in to see His His glory and what He has accomplished. Just meditate on this. Get them in your heart. Memorize them. Carry a Bible with you if you need to, but meditate it all day long of what He's done. What if we did this? What if all of us took each one of these five characteristics? And over the next few weeks, we grabbed one of those characteristics. We said the compassionate heart. And we, we just grabbed something from God's Word where it says that Christ is compassionate. And we meditated on it and meditated on it day in and day out until we become like Him. And then move to the next one. And then move to the next one. And then move to the next one. And maybe do it all over again. What if we did that? Let me close with an example. I just want to give you an example. Of this being lived out. And we'll close down with this example. I want to give you an example of a man. That had to live out. And was able to live out Christ's forgiveness. In a very hard place. A hard, hard, hard situation. To forgive. The man I'm talking about is John Perkins. He's a godly man. An African American civil, civil rights leader. He's still living today in West Jackson. Leading a little Bible study on Tuesday mornings. Got to be close to 90 with a fire in his bones. Several decades ago, evil, wicked, and racist police officers from Brandon, Mississippi arrested him unjustly, took him in unjustly, and they began to torture him. I want you to think about some of the things they did to him. They beat him in this Mississippi jail. They beat him to death. They kicked him, stomped him. He's, he pictures himself laying in a fetal position just to protect himself in these moments. Drunken officers. They're, they're, they're beating Perkins while he's writhing in a pool of his own blood. He's experiencing this in Brandon, Mississippi. They're dry firing guns off of his head just to terrify him. They're, he's going in and out of consciousness. And in some of his moments of consciousness, they're shoving a fork up his nose and down his throat just to see him gag. It's a situation hard to forgive, right? To say the least. Hard to forgive. And I want you to notice something that John Perkins wrote about this. 
As he spent some time dealing with the feelings of hatred toward these people and even, and even a hatred towards white people in rural America in general. He, he feels this enemy struggling with it. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. And notice how much of this, of what affected his heart was he saw the forgiveness of Christ. Listen to this and we'll close with it. John Perkins says, The Spirit of God worked on me as I laid in that bed. An image formed in my mind. The image of the cross. Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and He cared. Because He had experienced it all Himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what He preached, yet He was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, He went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial, mo- at, at the crucial moment it seemed as to Jesus that even God Himself had deserted Him. The suffering was so great that He cried out in agony. He was dying. But when He looked at that mob who had lynched Him, He didn't hate Him. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound mystery, a profound mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. Let's pray. Father, please help us, God. Help us to see what you want us to see about being chosen and loved by you and set apart by you and for you. God, help us to see that warm our hearts and move us to worship over these realities. And God, I pray that we would flow out of that. Would just be a heart on fire, passionate God, and devoted to putting on these qualities. God, please forgive me. God, I want to repent of these things, these qualities being so far down on the list in my own heart. God, change me. Make me think like you think. God, make me hate pride like you hate pride, especially in myself. God, cause me to love humility, God, and walk humbly with my God. Like you've called me to. And I pray for everybody here, Lord. To put on these qualities, Lord. To be full. Make us a church. Give us marriages and make us a church that are absolutely full of hearts of compassion. Full of patience. Full of meekness and humility and kindness, God. Acts of kindness going all across this church and in our marriages. God, please help us. Please help us, Lord. God, I praise you that you have done that in so many ways. You have done that, God. You have worked in us. We're just asking for more, Lord. We see so much weakness, God, and we're asking for more. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for our sins. Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that your glory and your work and all that you have done for us would be constantly on our minds, God. Draw away our hearts to think often on you. And let it impact our souls, please. In Jesus' name, amen.